welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Use the hashtag Disrupt TV to ask Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests any questions you have live, and we'll do our best to answer them live and certainly get back to you after the show. It's my privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet. And more and more, I see him on Fox Business and CNBC and Bloomberg. So he's now a television personality. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Vala. Vala is, as you know, my co-host, but more importantly, he's one of the top followers on Twitter for CMOs, CIOs, and also about life and business at the same time. He's a published author as well, and of course, a regular television celebrity in the business press. But more importantly, we're not here to talk about ourselves. We're here to talk about what is happening in the market. And today we've got a very, very special guest, someone that left the industry analyst world and is now over at a very special company. Vala, who do we have? It's our privilege and an honor. I've been trying hard to get Michael on the show, and we're so happy to have Matthew Moe, Senior Vice President of Innovation Strategy at Salesforce, the world's largest provider of CRM software and services. Michael was one of the creators of, in the CRM space, beginning in Europe, where he was part of the first global CRM software company in the world. Prior to Salesforce, Michael was a distinguished analyst and research fellow there's only a handful of those at Gartner, where he was one of the founders of CRM and customer experience practice. Michael has spoken at business and technology conferences on five continents and works with business leaders of the world's largest businesses and governments, helping them with digital transformation and building experiences that delight all stakeholders. You can follow Michael on Twitter at M-I-M-A-O-Z. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Oh, thanks for having me today. It's great. Hey, Michael, I remember briefing you in 2003 at Bridges yes. Restaurants in Danville yes. uh, when I was at PeopleSoft way, way, way back. Way back. So, uh, I mean, you've been one of the early, uh, you know, early pioneers in the CRM business. We are now moving to an intersection of CX plus AI, CX, augmented reality, CX plus a whole bunch of things that are creating these areas that are like ambient experiences. Where do you see this future heading? Because we've been talking about CRM since like 97 when we was front office and then suddenly you guys called it CRM. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been crazy. There's been a lot happening. And uh, it, 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 though sometimes I'll, I'll meet a, a CIO or I'll meet a, I meet a head of sales and they'll say, really, has anything changed? Because <laughs> Really, you're still trying to do the same thing. You're trying to figure out what's in the head of the customer, and that hasn't changed. You're trying to build relationships with them when they're always changing, when, when you really can't get your finger on the pulse of who they are and what they are. So in some ways, it really hasn't changed at all. But a lot of things have changed. And some of the technologies that I think when I started out, you know, Al Gore had not even invented the internet, right? Let's face it. So <laughs> we were working on phone-based systems only. And that's all, you know, that's basically, you could, you could help the store or you could help the phone, but that was about it. So today, you're looking at some of the things you have, some of the great data visualization tools, just amazing. You can take tremendous amounts of data and in real time, see trends, see where people are moving. See what, you can also look at emotion detection or voice detection. You see, I can tell right now, you know, your face might be saying you're, you're actually cool and happy, but image recognition, not so much, or four seconds of your voice, and I can say, he's really upset with me, or he's really tense for some reason, or he's very chill, and it's a good time to make an offer. None of that stuff. Or identity location systems, uh, voice-driven systems, which are being used tremendously, integrated with things like bots, and you see com companies like American Express or Comcast or a dozen others, having the entire support process driven through AI, great integration with backend systems and, and voice. And then maybe the other one which I've seen coming up, uh, talk maybe, maybe get a chance to talk about later, uh, is some of this ambient stuff in augmented reality, both of which are very, very cool. It's, it's amazing. So, you know, you know, you're talking about companies that are trying to build their sense and response capabilities yeah. by this combinatorial effect of leveraging technologies like Internet of Things and machine learning and computer visioning and social and mobile. And, but at the same time, in this age of connected customer, this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy, 
is more and more concern or mindfulness in terms of implications, in terms of ethics and, and trust and privacy and environment. So as you guide CEOs of some of the biggest companies and governments around the world, how do you talk to them about this balancing act where the shareholder wants profit, but the innovators, trailblazers, need a safe space and ample time to experiment and iterate and build processes, perhaps at the expense of short-term profitability. So how do they do that? Like, how do you, it seems like a delicious paradox. And unless you find a balance, you're not going to be able to stay relevant. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we talk about the CXO, but those X's really matter in the X's and O's, right? Because if a CEO lacks clout with the board, you're not going to get very far. Or sometimes you have CEOs who are really crafty about, they go directly out past the shareholder. They go right out to the direct customer. Think about people like Apple or, I don't know, Southwest Air, or Starbucks, Qualcomm, EMC, even Salesforce, right? They go straight out and they make their case. Uh, I remember famously Bezos, or Bezos, uh, when he had shown $250 million in spend on no questions asked return. And the shareholders said, hey, what about that $250 million? What are you going to do about it? And you say, well, I'm hoping you'll dump my shares so I can get rid of people <laughs> like you who are holding me back. <laughs> Or the, like a $2 billion same-day prime or next-day prime. I mean, yeah. So either you have that strong connection with the customer and the board respects that, or you have the shareholders who fear that, uh, or you have to keep your head down and go a lot slower. You have to iterate a lot slower. You have to show the value that you've created. And there you can use that kind of iterative process to get things done, but, it, the, but the pacing is going to be a lot slower. And, then, you know, you and a follow-up with the CIO, what about the CIO? Does she still have the opportunity to really be the catalyst and, and the person that helps the CEO execute the vision? Did they ever? I mean, <laughs> weren't, weren't they really the people who kept the lights on, the plumbing yeah. going? And yeah. you know, think about their, and I, I don't mean that in a, to, you know, in a, to say anything negative about them, but their job is so all-encompassing, you know, scale and security and privacy. <laughs> and fraud, these the things that are on their shoulders as an information officer, right? Anything goes wrong, they lose their job. So this is like, what's the discretionary budget or, or headset that the CIO gets where he, she, or they are speaking to anyone to get anything done? Where's their clout? So you do see these really innovative CIOs, but they, it tends to come from that kind of legitimacy that's been given to them by, by the, the board and by the CEO. Right. Wow. We're definitely seeing this, you know, this, this intersection, right? I mean, we had this, you know, tussle that was going on then CDOs and CIOs and CMOs. Um, almost 10 years ago, Esteban and I kind of got out into a conference in Italy talking about the CMO-CIO struggle, which eventually got to these conversations around what was happening with these chief digital officers. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, it seems like, you know, uh, the, the, the delineation it seems to be blurred. Right. So, so when we talk about these experiences, like even the CFO is talking about customer experience, which is kind of interesting. So I don't know if you're seeing that as well, Michael. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see it. And, and depend, it's so much dependent on the company. You know, you, you know company it. culture. Yep. Companies and you, know, you, you leave, like, for example, you know, Gartner every year puts out a survey on the CIO and the CFO. And you look at where they are in the pecking order. And generally, CIO is number five. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, Good luck with that on the customer experience change front. You're, you're especially the chief digital officers talking to you, chief, like you said, data officer, marketing officer, and basically CEOs like, look, I just want you to grow and grow profitably and make you know the customers all love us and shareholders, and that makes that makes the CIO's job often very very difficult because they don't really have the gravitas or clout in in all businesses. They do in some, which is self. You see those, but in most, it's, if you're not. Uh, doing this kind of collaboratively, it's really going to be, it's really a team effort. When the team gets together, you really see things happening. Absolutely. Got it. So, so related to, oh, so related to this, what are, who are some of the companies that are doing this right? I really get it, right? Yeah. At the cultural level, understanding the technology landscape, understanding the type of people to hire and bring on board, right? And, and really understanding how to deliver on the brand promise. Who, who's doing that well? Well, I mean, I know our company does you know, Salesforce. It's one of the reasons I joined because I, I really see they put their money where their mouth is and they do things for long term. But you go around the world and you see different companies. Like I was in the um, UK, Yorkshire Bank. They're really amazing from, from understanding how pensioners are doing things or people who are homebound because they might be 
whatever, in some way, mobily uh, limited, or they look at the journey paths of the key segments and they know, you know, this one's gonna use the mobile app, this one's gonna use the website, this one's gonna have to come in. Or for this process, that same person who would use the mobile app for one thing is gonna have to come in and have a phone call or is gonna have to sit in front of us or we're gonna have to go out to them. You know, you see Capital One and, you know, it's famous, you know, in DC and Philly where they put the coffee machines, the whole barista station right next to the, the place. Yep. So they know that the younger demographic is kind of a, afraid of banks. Uh, or Vanguard. I mean, Vanguard's a great company. Trader Joe's. You walk into Trader Joe's. Who doesn't? Yep, yep, yep. They know everything about you. They know you're not into that really funky cheese. Go to Putney, Vermont, and watch the you know watch the goat get milk if you're old. But for Trader Joe's, they understand. Um, Australia. I was at a Pacific Fair shopping center. It's one of the craziest places. You're walking to a shopping center, but it's not a shopping center with 120 vendors. It's a organism. It's just one group. They act as one, even though there are 120 separate entities. Or here in the United States, Amica Insurance, if you ever looked at them, check them out. Amazing yep, yep. service, just mind blowing. And everything is integrated. They get right out to you. Of course, famously, Warby Parker. <laughs> Unbelievable. And um, maybe Nordstrom's. Re retail's really, really hard, and they do a great job. They still do. All right, well, local, where do you put a Stu Leonard's in that experience? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to pass. <laughs> I, I, only, I only go in there, like, you know, it's, it's good if you're, I don't know, if someone's taking mushrooms or something, because like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> we'll pass, we'll pass. So, you know, so, you know, my company, our company, uh, grew to a $16 billion uh, annual revenue company in 20 years. And if there's a handful of people that help guide our company, you're one of those people. And you often write, and, uh, and when you write blogs, I, I, I see that you combine life experiences, business experiences, and you give advice. In one of your latest blogs, by the way, I encourage all of our audience to, to look up Michael's blogs, incredibly insightful. Uh, who can uh, correlate jazz music to CRM and customer experience? And that was one of your last blogs. But in one, you said when you advise your children, in terms of uh, uh, um, trying to solve complex uh, scenarios, you, 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 you ask them, you know, how do you get there from here? Right. And in the blog, you said the goal of an enterprise to be customer centric. So understanding the customer intent to be our best selves. So you said, go sit with the customer care or tech support or billing or returns folks, the ones who need to accomplish the goal of delivering great customer experience. And then ask yourself, how do we get there from here? Yeah. How often do you feel that the executives that you coach and advise and companies that you consult with take the time to understand where they are and where they need to be? And can you expand on that, on that, on that, on that thesis? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that it's hard for them to do because they have, we talked about this short-termism. And when you sit with someone, and I always I ask, like, who, is, who is they? When you talk about, you know, they're going to do this or we're going to do this, then who's the we? you have this kind of continuity. You know, when I worked at Gartner, one of the amazing things, we went from being very poor customer service, being one of the best in the world, because we had a new CEO, guys, Gene Hall. And basically he did this, let's go outside in. Why don't we go outside and ask the clients, why do you buy our services? Why do you, why do you go to our conferences or not go? Why, what do you like or not like about our pricing? And so, oh, gee, that's Novell. Let's go ahead and then let's, pri let's prioritize it. And now the final thing is, Let's put metrics on the, on the chest of every person in the entire company. Literally, you're walking around and you know your metrics. And at any time, there's complete transparency around them. So there's no, gee, I wonder what my role is in becoming that customer-centric organization. What do you want to know? We've decided on the metrics. You've bought into the metrics. Uh, you can see they're, they're codified. So you, I can go and see that you're a... You're, you're average among your peer group, or you're below average. So maybe it's time I check left for something else. Not why I left, by the way. But, <laughs> but, who knows? but you know, but that, that idea of let's get real, let's do this kind of radical transparency. And by the way, if you want to see a lot about that, go read uh, Ray Dalio's um, principles. He ran an entire company based on radical transparency. And I think that's an amazing thing. Radical truth, radical transparency in business and your personal life. Um, and, and to get to where you're going, and I'm going to stop in a minute, but I you know we have limited time, but you know, I sat with Clay Christensen a couple of years ago. We were talking about his book that he came out with, um, Competing Against Luck. And that was really like the, the stuff that I was writing about in the intent-driven enterprise. Like, what is my intent as a business? It's to take all of your money, right? That's, that's what I'm there for. <laughs> but, but 
I have to do that in, in, in symmetry with what's your intent. You know, why do people spend stupid money for some objects and say, that's great, let me spend more, like Apple products. My kids just couldn't wait for that damn Apple thing. Oh, gee, it broke, smam. <laughs> I can't wait to spend $1,000 on something it probably costs 150 right? Because my intent is to build the brand of me, not Apple, but me. And my brand is intrinsically wrapped around it. So that's the idea, they got my intent and they, they work towards it. So I'm okay with that. Right, so that, that is something great. And, and, Ray, and what Clay said in that is you're competing against luck usually instead mm -hmm. of what's the job to be done? What did they hire you for? Yeah, what did they hire you for, for goodness sake? They hired you to do X. What are you doing? X minus 20%. Well, once the other person goes does X minus 15%, they're going to probably flip and go to you unless you've really gotten to the core of it. That's so true. Now we had Kim Scott uh, at our event last year on Radical Transparency and she did a wonderful job uh, showcasing that. But let's talk a little bit about you. How did you get started? Like, you know, what got you into CRM and what happened pre before you even got into Gartner? Like, how did you get your, how did you start your career in this area, right? Yeah. I mean, you're like the no, really. CRM guy, so. It's, it's really funny, complete serendipity, pure serendipity. I had recently moved to Munich from, um, from Tel Aviv where I had been part of a startup doing digital imaging. Great, we actually created the, the, whole, the whole concept of di digital imaging before there was a, an Apple, for example. We, we found this tiny company from uh, Caltech, uh, these, these six engineers, um, and they became this little company called Adobe. <laughs> and they knew how to do text, and we knew how to do image, and it became like peanut butter and jelly, unless you have you know, allergy allergy to peanut butter. Um, in any case, I got to, to, uh, to Munich and I was planning on not doing anything but windsurf and you know, read Goethe and whatever you're doing there. And um, I was literally in the hallway of a brewery and I was sitting on a keg of beer and it was a Sunday morning and these two young guys uh, approached me. <laughs> I thought they were like, they hadn't found their way out that morning. And they started a company called Point. And their idea was the point of the intersection of sales, marketing and service. And that was in 1994 when no one had wow. that idea. I mean, no one. And they're like, yeah, we call this customer interaction systems. And so a salesperson could see the marketing thing that was put out and they can also see the service record. Service person could see the marketing offer plus the sales history. And like, what do you think? You wanna work with that? And I, I said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about you know raster image processing or something and they said well would you be interested and and that's it I, that's how i got into crm that was 1994 and this is my 25th year in it and i can tell you it's only gotten better it's only gotten more amazing you know back then we're trying to sell it you know, to, to germans the idea of customer service uh customer service like people pay for that right free. <laughs> No, it's actually part of the experience. Hmm. So it took a long time, but we actually yeah, did get some key customers uh, like I IBM and a few others to go global with the idea. From RIP to CRM, what yeah, an interesting story. <laughs> Michael, this is my, uh, my last question. Uh, in another article that you wrote where you talked about what, what do best companies do in terms of delivering a, a, a great customer experience? You said they live by the ideal of good customer support by keeping the customer journey mapped and available as a visible living document for all to see. Can you talk to our audience about the importance of customer journeys and, and being able to deliver insights across the enterprise in near real time so that when there is an opportunity for you to add value to your stakeholder, you're able to do so. Yeah, that's, it's amazing, right? You walk in and, and, and this is like the, you know, the Persian story of the elephant and, and with the blind people. And it is true. You ask everyone, they've got a different idea of even who the customer is. Like most CIOs you talk to go, oh, customer, you mean finance? <laughs> nope. <laughs> HR? No, I mean the one who buys your product or service. Oh, those people. Can I have root canal first? <laughs> no, you know, basically. I, I tell wow. them, Would you like fries with that? <laughs> fries with that. Yeah, I just said, hey, look, figure out who the we are who's working on this customer journey because it's so rewarding when you get it right. But take a step back. Get, take a step back from whatever echo chamber you're living in. And we're all living in an echo chamber, let's face it. So you got to step back and say, are we sure that we have our customer success priorities straight? Hmm. And how do I know that? Where, where's the data? Is the data right? Who did you ask? Did you ask the customer? Did you ask our partner? Did you ask our non-customers? Did you ask our competitors' customers? Who did you ask? Is it right for the key persona we're trying to go for? And how do we know that? 
So job one is not to ape the competition. In fact, I'm saying that don't even look at the competition. Look at your customer. They're going to tell you everything. They really want you to do it. So, you know, we work so hard on, on getting like our channels right and our segments right and our, our, you know, that we staged all that stuff right. And like, okay, yeah, but it's just as hard or even harder to operationalize all that change. You know, the people process technology things, no joke. You know, you got to measure it. You got to sustain it. You got to motivate people. You have to find out, in a, you talk about customer journey, which is the critical link that's going to make or break the customer experience? Like, don't sweat the small stuff. The customer, yeah, I forgive you. Everyone sucks at that. But this thing right here, this is, the, this is the key. And when that's mapped and everyone in the organization goes, got it, I get what it is, I get the sequencing, I get the prioritization, I understand the metrics, and we're in, we're in sync with the customer. There's no them and us, it's just we. And we make profit and they get a great experience. And guess what? It's a, it's a heuristic, it's a successful heuristic. Awesome. Wow. We are here with legendary Gartner, former Gartner analyst, Michael Mao, Senior Vice President of Innovation Strategy at Salesforce. You can follow him at Twitter at M-I-M-A-O-Z. Thank you so much, man, for being on Thank the show. You. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. It was great. Have a great weekend. Wow. Wow. See, great. <laughs> there was so much gold nuggets in that last five minutes. It was unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I, I hope I'm, it, it's going to make a great blog for me. Speaking of amazing gold nuggets and insights. We're now here with our second segment of Disrupt TV. We're joined with Sonny Bonnell and Ashley Hansberger, who are authors of a new book called Rare Breed. Sonny and, uh, and Ashley are also award-winning founders of Motto, one of the top branding and digital agencies for rule break breakers and game changers. Ray, I think you and I are, you know, we, we break rules. Uh, Sonny? <laughs> I don't know if we break them like they do. <laughs> Sonny and Ashley have been featured in CBS News, Fox Business, Entrepreneur, Chicago Tribune, Forbes, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, just about every media outlet around the world. Between the two of them, they are members of the Young Entrepreneurs Council and have been uh, on lists such as GDUSA's Top 25 People to Watch and Inc's 30 Under 30 and America's Coolest Young Entrepreneurs. Just check out the background with the with the guitars. Co-authored a new book titled Rare Breed, A Guide to Success for Defiant, Dangerous, and Different. Uh, you can follow Sonny and Ashley on Twitter at Sonny Bonnell, S-U-N-N-Y-B-O-N-N-E-L-L, -L, and Ashley at A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H-S-N-O-T-E-S, -E -E Ashley's Notes. Welcome, Sonny and Ashley, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having us. I love how you did that full body. You guys are awesome. I have to reduce your bio. We only have a 20 minute segment. You guys have done a ton. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Hey, welcome to the show. And then guess what? We are live coast to coast on like some 20 some radio stations. So people are listening yeah, in as well. So just, yeah. Hello world. Hello world. <laughs> Hello world. So let's start about culture. So what's wrong with our culture right now that tells us to the path to success? Because you guys are rule breakers and you're really changing the perspective, helping people think about this in a very, very different way. Yeah. Well, we go into a lot of organizations within companies that we find that they are, they don't stand for something. They're just kind of selling something. And I think what we're trying to understand and harness, at least in the work that we've done, is that many organizations just aren't walking the walk. They're not talking the talk. They're really saying one thing and doing another. And so what we uh, kind of expose as part of this book is how do we go into organizations? How do we go into companies? And how do we teach them how to think in a way that is almost counterintuitive to the way that they've been taught and the way that they think uh, the path to success is how you reach sort of the glory land, if, if you will. And so I think, you know, so much of the world right now teaches you what you shouldn't be. And we're sort of saying, no, it's actually the opposite. You should be able to learn how to leverage these seven so-called vices that are in the book. And we teach you how to leverage those to make them sort of your selling points, both in a culture, in a brand, or within your own career. Very cool. So tell us, tell us about Rare Breed. How did you come up with the title, and what does it mean uh, when you when you when you think about uh, rare breed? Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. So Ashley and I started our company when we were in our early twenties. We dropped out of college together and started our company with two hundred fifty dollars. And a few years into business, uh, yeah, it's, it's a crazy story. 
Um, we're celebrating our 15th year in business, so uh, it's pretty pretty awesome sort of journey that we've been on. But you know, a few years into business, we were we realized that we were not uh, following a traditional path. Everything about our business was unordinary. Uh, everyone told us around us that we would fail. Who did we think we were? These two young girls coming in to start a company had never ran a company before, and we were sort of surrounded in doubt. And, you know, those first couple of years of running the business and really trying to own who we are in, a, in an environment that was not supportive of that made us sort of feel at times often very defeated. And we had a lot of self-doubt. And we had a conversation with my father, who was also an entrepreneur, started his company um, out of a coal mining camp and started with much less money than I did. Uh, and, you know, kind of gave Ashley and I a piece of advice. He said, you two are a rare breed. Not everyone's going to love you. Some people may even but the ones who get you will never forget you. And that was really kind of the awakening aha moment where we said, instead of making these things our sort of negatives, how do we how do we spin this into our positives? How do we make what makes us different and unique our actual selling points? And so we completely changed the trajectory of our business. We now work with brands as big as 20th Century Fox with a lot of disruptors, innovation labs within companies. And it's all because of the, the way that our mindset was created in those early days have now become the thing that like people seek us out for. We have a saying that we're sometimes we're fired for the same reason that we're hired. And it's because of some people want that dangerous different thinking and we bring it to them and we walk them to the ledge and they're like, wait, that's like a long way down. That's kind of risky. Um, it's how we teach organizations now how to think like a rare breed because a rare breed is just simply unordinary among their kind. It's mm -hmm. the people who stand out. It's the organizations that stand out. It's the brands that stand out. And what they're doing is they're tapping into vices, the thing that everybody tells you not to mm -hmm. be. And they're kind of zigging when other people zag and to use kind of a cliche, but it's true. Like they're harnessing the power of who they are, not just the pretty parts. Awesome. Wow. You know, we should talk about the vices, right? You guys talk yeah. about how vices turn to virtues, what they were rebellious, obsessed, hot-blooded, hypnotic. I, I think I'm missing a few, but let's yeah, talk. There's seven. There's rebellious, seven. audacious, obsessed, hot-blooded, weird, uh, hypnotic, and emotional. And what's interesting about all of these is when we were spending the time really trying to define what those vices were, they had to have a duality to them, meaning a lot of people would say, you're too emotional, you're too weird. And they had to have a dark side to them, meaning if you didn't know how to tap into them, they could actually be a, a sort of a thing that could destroy you or destroy your career, could shut doors on you, or it could be the thing that opens the doors. Um, and so that's how we kind of came up with the criteria for how we define what those vices are. When that's you're dealing awesome. with an organization that's looking for you to guide their strategy, brand strategy and, and leadership strategy, how quickly can you tell whether the person opposite you across the table is a rare breed, um, <laughs> unique, they, embrace, they, they, they celebrate diversity, there's, they're gritty, they're, 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 they're thinking differently. How, how quickly can you tell them? What do you look for? We've gotten pretty you good You can tell pretty quickly. You yeah. know, I think a, someone who walks in the world owning who they are, you can spot them from 10 miles away. Awesome. And it's this feeling like that there's, they're not ashamed of the things that, um, that, that make them who they are, right? They're not ashamed that they're rebels and they have audacious visions that everyone else thinks is, are crazy and impossible until you know, they are able to be tasked with the idea and, and actually be able to bring it to life. Only then are they celebrated. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, you can spot a rare breed immediately. Sometimes it does take a little bit of pulling out though. You know, I think there's a lot of silent rare breeds in the world who are just waiting for the permission to right. finally start to own who they are. So and, these, are just, these are just extroverts. You can have, you can yeah. be an extrovert. And, and Absolutely. Oh yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, because I think, well, I didn't want to cut you off, but I think, I think a lot of people like mentors, friends, um, you know, even anyone in our life that has any kind of influence on how we think or shapes like our opinions of ourselves and of, of each other. You know, a lot of people we, we say and have seen that sometimes like one negative no or a, a shroud of doubt can actually keep people like a, a sleeping lion. Like they're just kind of silent forever. And I think that the point of being a rare breed is that yes, they are in fact rare, 
but I think there's more of them out there than we know. And I think they are in fact just not awakened yet or it's not been activated or they feel like they cannot be themselves. We just did a, um, a, a fishbowl the other day with the, the fishbowl app and someone had come on and asked me, asked us a question in the fishbowl about that they were gay and they were afraid to be gay within their workplace because they felt ashamed of who they are. And I said, get another culture, get another company. Like mm. I've been in cultures where it is okay and you are celebrated to mm. be whatever sexuality you are. Mm. And the fact that you're in an environment that's suppressing that and doesn't allow you to be who you are is, is really discouraging and disappointing. I think we've come a long way, but there's so much further to go. And I think uh, when you go into a company, especially because we, we work with hundreds and hundreds of companies at this point, and when you go inside those organizations and you feel that there's love and encouragement and support and they're celebrating that diversity, it is something that is unhinged and uncontainable and it's just like a fire through the organization. And then we've been in companies where who you are, you are not allowed to be who you are. And it's, it's, really, it's really sad. So this is a book about trying to not only as a person unleash that and find that within yourself, but also within organizations to teach them how to look through these seven vices and actually make it a cutting edge for their organization. Awesome, awesome. This is amazing. I mean, we're thinking about this in terms <laughs> of how people- quiet and you're never quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could tell the wheels were turning and racing. Yeah, his wheels are going. I know, I'm thinking about this, like, you know, we've, we've, we've got this event, like it's in Atlanta, it's like the end of February. It's our ambient experience summit. We're bringing CXOs, CMOs, and CIOs and CDOs together. I'm thinking like, they got to think different. So I'm going to talk to you guys later about this uh, offline. It's kind of huge. So yeah. how do rare breeds stay true though? Because like after a while, people get mellowed out. They don't have that edge anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, do you, what do you do to stay, keep your rebellious nature, right? Um, when everything's all structured and it's in a project, right? And people like typically just follow the rules and most people, most people are conventional. Like how do you keep that identity? Yeah, I, I think it's practicing it, you know, a lot. It's kind of, it, it's a daily habit that you have to allow yourself to be fully, fully step into who you are and not take the bait on those opportunities that start to say, oh no, your, 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 your ideas are too bold or your, I don't think we should go that way. Cause the whole premise of, of these projects and within companies and the structure, and it's kind of designed to, to play safe in most instances. Yeah. And I think that rare breeds don't do all that well in those types of environments. And that's usually why they make excellent leaders. That's why they make excellent entrepreneurs. They, that's why they make, people who are become influencers and, and cultural provocateurs. These are people who need to step out. They need the breathing room. They need the, the, the limitless nature of who they are. And sometimes, depending on the culture of the company, they can't always thrive uh, in who they are within certain organizations. So, you know, I think it's really important to make sure at first and foremost that you, you find the environment and you find the, the place where you can belong and where you can be who you are and where who you're, if, if you're in an organization and there is quite the, um, the ladder, uh, that your higher ups will support you and your ideas, even if they might seem risky or they might seem bold or they might seem too advantageous. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's kind of turning the, the dial up on making sure that that becomes more acceptable and more heard because oftentimes the ones that break the rules have the one, are the ones who, ultimately move can the get world. the power yeah. and move the world forward in so many instances. Yeah. So it's important to nurture this quality, I think, within organizations, even if they are not inherently rebellious, find ways to become those things and not turn a blind eye on it, but find ways to celebrate that within a group. That's yeah. saved advice. That's saved advice. Um, I, I think about uh, when, when, I, when I wrote my book, I, I had a co-author. And when I think, when I reflect about my, my learning curve, uh, the best learning opportunities during the process of writing a book was when him and I had a disagreement on a recommendation or a prior <laughs> set of recommendations. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that, but, but spirited. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. nonetheless, we had some amazing debates. Um, what did you learn about yourself or your co-author in the process of writing, uh, you know, the writing Rare Breed? just how strong we are. Nice. 
I yeah. think that that you know we've grown up together. So we've we I mean we met when I think you were like 15 and I was yeah, 18. Yeah. So we were very young. We went to college together. We dropped out of college together. Like we have a very interesting story and we had to learn the hard way how to navigate each other because it was something that didn't come natural. It was something we've learned. We've been forged in the fire, so to speak. And I think running the company together taught us how to have disagreements and not always agree on things, but also our values are very much in line. So it allowed us to disagree and have healthy debates, but also like still know what we were fighting for in the long run. I think this book tested a lot of our tenacity and our perseverance. Like the very first edition of Rare Breed got turned down by every major publisher and everyone around us told us we couldn't go back with the same name. And because we're audacious as fuck, we were like, yeah, right, we're going and, and, and we're going to a bidding war. So, you know, that was something that tested our tenacity and our perseverance. But it's the one thing that I think we've learned about each other is just how like now we're starting to see like what her strengths are, what my strengths are. And like, we're now able to lean on each other in a different way because we know that the other person is much better at something than, than maybe I am or, you know, vice versa. And so, yeah, you know, you just, you just come to the, to the table as you are and you learn through those processes how to become even stronger. Uh, and I think our book is a result of that. It's, it's absolutely yeah. our heart and soul into a, into a, into a manuscript. Very, very inspiring. Very inspiring. Thank you. Now there's a lot of talk about, you know, you know, are rare breeds extroverted? Are they introverted? Where do they fit? Can you be both like rare breed and, and introvert? Does that happen as well? Oh, absolutely. I think so. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that? We, um, there's a lot of quiet rebellion that can happen. There's a such thing as quiet courage. There's such thing as doing things that only you know yourself and don't, you know, you're not, you're not um, screaming out into the world. So yes, absolutely. It's not about the, uh, the fieriness of your personality and how introverted or extroverted you are. A lot of these qualities can exist within a very reserved or even a shy person. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it, that is not the mark of a rare breed uh, is, is if you're an introvert or an extrovert. There's so much more to it and underneath the surface of that. And I think it's about sort of you know, ha ha knowing that those things are within you and then acting upon them. You know, it's interesting, we created a, a quiz uh, we worked with a, a psychologist and a professor who helped us create a quiz where you can actually figure out what your vice is. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's 28 questions and you go online, it's rarebreedquiz.com. And we've had hundreds and hundreds of people taking it. It's, it's actually been really, really cool to see. But what we learned through this process is, and so I was interested to see like if there were any trends with what certain people were identifying. And we've started to see a trend that people are identifying as emotional. And now keep in mind in the business world, emotion is bad. Like not passion, not hot blooded fury and intensity, but like emotional. Like emotion is something that you should kind of, you know, sort of suppress, like you no know, crying at work, you know, things like that. And all, the trend has been in the quiz to date is that so many people are identifying as an emotional rare breed. And it made me think about, you know, is that the political landscape? Is that just the environment, the world that we're in? Like, is that why so many people are identifying this? And why are so many people coming out as that particular trait? You know, there's, we found that there's kind of a primary uh, trait, sort of a, you know, most people are like, they're really audacious and you can identify them as audacious, but some of them have like a secondary trait that might also kind of be equal to, or if not just below one of their main primary traits. Uh, and so it's been really interesting to see the amount of people taking the quiz and what people are coming out with and, and, and to know that they're, um, you know, that it's so spot on, you know, it's because it, I've had friends take it. And I'm like, oh, he's so that way, you know, so it's really cool to like know that it's, it's super accurate in terms of being able to say, uh, and the quiz tells you like, let's take obsession, for example, we talk about why obsession is an amazing trait to have in your life and your work and your career, but also what's the dark side of that? How can obsession paralyze you and keep you spinning your wheels and make you sort of non-productive? Like what's the danger side of that? And then we talk about like different famous rare breeds and things that have those um, traits. And, and so far it's been really cool to see. That's very cool. That's very cool. My last question, um, and, and that last conversation reminds me of Dr. Dr. Stephen Hawkins, who said, quiet people have the loudest minds. So, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, that's that's that I consider rare breeds. Um, 
what do you what do you hope is the conversation after someone reads your book? What's the takeaway you want for the readers? Do you want them to be you know uh, combat self doubt or imposter syndrome and be more bold and comfortable in who they are? What is that one takeaway that you hope that your readers walk away with after they read your exceptional book? I want them to. I, I want to answer this, and I think I should answer this, but. I want them to be thankful for small minds because that's how the rose grew from the concrete. That's how battles are won. That's how, you know, templates are shattered. That's how you become unapologetically you and learn how to temper those seven vices in such a powerful way that it becomes the keys to your success. And I just want people to like really feel that it's not a traditional business book, that it's not something that you're going to get, um, you know, that you're going to, you're going to read stories that you haven't heard of. You're going to hear examples that you haven't heard of. For example, our very first chapter is fuck norms. Like, you know, chapter 13 is like massage the octopus. It's like these crazy sort of aphorisms that like you, you, you read it and you're like, what the hell? But it's so it's like we, we're teaching you lessons about what does it mean to massage the octopus in your life? What, what does that actually mean? Uh, how do you be diligent, you know, and things like that. So yeah, I just want people to celebrate themselves and to feel like anything is possible because it is. We are live here with Sonny Bunnell, Ashley Hansberger, authors of Rare Breed, a guide to success for the defiant, dangerous, and different. You can catch the book everywhere where books are sold. They're going live September 3rd, 2019. This is going to be one of the top books of the year. So mark my words, it's going to be up there. So have fun. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you guys so much. We had such a blast. Terrific. Really well done. Thank you so much. Wow. All right. Uh, we're now here um, at our usual clean, clean up hitter spot where we bring uh, uh, Disrupt TV First Ballot Hall of Fame inductee to come and close the show for us. <laughs> We're here with uh, Larry Dignan, who's the editor-in-chief of ZDNet and Smart Planet, as well as editorial director of ZDNet's sister site, Tech Republic. Uh, Larry has been covering and writing about technology and financial service industries since 1995. So he's an incredible wealth of knowledge, one of the most prolific bloggers. Uh, and you can find uh, Larry and all, learn about all his works and publications on Twitter at L-D-I-G-N-A-N. Welcome back, Larry, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> Where are you? Where's that background? Are you in New York? Uh, New York, sort of, kind of, but not really. But <laughs> it's, it's no magic. <laughs> it's a great teleportation tool. Yes, it is. It is. So slightly better than haptics and teleportation. Let's talk about what's going on, man. Let's catch up. So Q2 earnings, everybody's coming up. Apple was there, Samsung was there, it hurt Intel, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. What does it look like? Is tech on a roar or is tech on a decline? What's happening? It all, it all depends on the sector. Um, Apple's core competency really just seems make, to be making money. Um, it, it's kind <laughs> of like the rest of just cash, but it's a services company now. They're selling a bunch of Apple Watches. Macs look good. Um, I think what's interesting for the iPhone cycle is just going to be whether you get 5G devices. Um, and the 5G thing's a little tricky, too, because it's, it's like hurry up and wait. Like, it's not really fully baked anyway. Um, but I don't know if that 2020 October thing for the iPhone, for a 5G iPhone, is going to work out that well. Um, so there's a lot of questions about Apple, but man, they just print money. And <laughs> all the giants are all doing that, right? So Google, Amazon, Microsoft, I mean, those three, it's, you know, it's, I mean, Google's obviously an advertising company, but AWS and Microsoft, it's really about enterprise cloud stuff. Um, you know, despite all the Amazon e-commerce stuff, I mean, the operating profit really comes from the cloud. So those guys are looking good. Uh, if you look at storage, uh, we had a profit warning from NetApp. Western Digital and Seagate, they're calling a bottom, but it's just kind of bouncing along. So it really just depends on what sector they're looking at. And throughout the whole thing, there's this sort of current about China tariffs and you know, cost of components going up. And you know, if you, if you read between the lines of the transcripts and, and what's going on, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So I think that's gonna screw up hiring a bit. Um, and there's just some caution. So you know, while things are looking generally pretty good in the second quarter, 
and the third quarter outlooks look all right. I mean, there's you get the feeling like you're on this apple cart that could just tip over at any moment. Um, and, and, you know, these companies are flush, flush with cash. So it's not like it's Armageddon per se, but you're, you're just kind of, yeah, we're on this apple cart. We keep, we're, we're at the top of a hill and I'm just not sure where it goes. And it just seems like there is a lot of uncertainty all over the place. Like whether you're looking at Europe, China, Asia, here, um, you know, we're, we're one tweet away from some big screw up almost every day. So at least for the stock market. So. About my tweets, are you? You're not talking about my tweets, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jeff, Larry's got I guess, a special tweeting uh, device. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Larry, you if mentioned you're a CEO and you see this volatility and things bounce around, you're kind of like, well, eh. you know, it's there's a lot of psychology at play here, and I just think people are ready to get cautious pretty quick. So. You mentioned Apple, you mentioned uh, 5G. Uh, you, you talked about the CEO seems to have a lot of enthusiasm about 5G, but yet in an article you wrote, you said Tim Cook was not as enthusiastic as perhaps the other CEOs, maybe more realistic in terms of impact of 5G. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in terms of business leaders bullish on 5G and where, and Gartner's forecast in terms of smartphone declines of maybe two and a half percent this year? And what does all that mean in terms of, for example, next week's Samsung announcement? You know, where will, how much does 5G really impact some of these big players in terms of economy and growth? Right. There's, there's like three or four subtitles under all this thing, right? So the story I wrote this week talking about how Qualcomm was bullish on 5G, it's, yeah. you know, part of that's like in, in stock market terms, you know, they're kind of talking their own book, right? So of course, Qualcomm is going to talk about how 5G is going to help their financials because, well, their outlook kind of sucked, right? So, <laughs> it's sort of like, yeah, 5G coming in a year. Um, and then you got, you know, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, they're all talking up, you know, 5G too. So, and then you get to the device makers. And Tim Cook is another guy who's just kind of talking the book, right? Because he's saying, well, this is going to be slow to develop. And I totally agree with that from a consumer perspective. And, you know, he's saying it's going to be a 2020, 2021 thing because he's not coming out with new phones until next year that'll have 5G. So, of course, he's going to say that. So, for the enterprise, 5G and Internet of Things and all that looks kind of promising. Like, we'll probably see real pilots and real things going on you know, probably in the next couple of quarters or so for the consumer, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at my 4G phone. I'm not going to buy another 4G phone, but I'm also not going to pay a premium for 5G. So something like Samsung, I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, here's a note, note 10. And I'm thinking about the note nine because it'll be cheaper and it'll, you know, it can, it can kind of ride out, you know, until this 5G thing really works. Um, I was in a preview with the uh, Note 10 uh, on Tuesday as well. Uh, actually, no, Thursday, Wednesday. Yeah. Anyways, I got to see that thing. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's it, without 5G, it's still pretty good is what I'm going to say. That's all I can say. I think we're both under some bounded whatever NDAs. So, but, yeah, uh, I haven't had that yet, but, I mean, I've seen enough. <laughs> the part about Samsung is they put you on these NDAs, but everything's leaked anyway. Right. So my biggest problem with the Note 10 is that, you know, that SD card's leaving, which I kind of dug. Uh, and the other one is, you know, the lack of the heads headset jack. Like, I, I just, I hate dongles. Right. I mean, I look, I look at iPhone people and I'm like, for the love of God. And, and the Mac people, you know, everybody's got a dongle for everything. And it's just too much. So now Samsung's giving me that. And I'm kind of like, eh, screw you. So, hey, come on. This is how Tim Cook made his money. They print money because they take every piece of the value chain from dongles all the way to. Uh, that's fine for them. For me, it's a pain, right? And, yeah. and, you know, the headset jack is kind of a big deal because I don't, has anyone tried to use a Bluetooth headset with a phone that's running on Wi-Fi calling? Like, it's too much. Like, it doesn't work half the time, right? It, it, jo it drops, it comes back. I mean, it's terrible. So, so it's one of those things where, yeah, you, sometimes you want the damn headphone jack because it just takes, you know, one more wireless thing to work out of the equation. So, you know, but the, the broader thing here is like, do I buy a phone now or do I wait for 5G to actually really happen? And that's a big question if you're a consumer because these phones aren't cheap. 
right? No, we're talking and thousands on these. It is. Right. The analysis I saw, I thought, was well, Samsung had 25 or 24% of smartphone market share globally. Apple had 11%, so it was 35. So one in three is an Apple or a Samsung. The rest are mid-tier smartphone vendors, folks like Huawei and others. Uh, do you, should we be watching to see whether these mid-tier uh, smartphone vendors are going to take share from the, you know, the two premier? Oh, I, I think they're taking share right now. I mean, I play with the OnePlus. I played with a few Motorola devices, and they're all they're all pretty solid. Um, you know, my issue is I use the Note as a reporter's notebook, so that's the only that's the only real thing keeping me sort of on that in that Note camp. Um, so, so that's you know that's an issue. Um, but generally speaking, I, you can get a fine phone for you know five hundred bucks, four hundred bucks, or, or less, or less, or less, or less. The problem, the other problem here is the camera. Like you buy those phones, there are some camera sacrifices to be made. Right. So that's, that's the, probably the biggest issue with the whole thing. So you have to put a dollar amount on what your camera is worth to you in terms of how it works. And that's why I think Google's doing pretty well to Pixel because the camera, they kind of balance, they balance that good camera with price point and it's, it's a pretty good mix. Uh, people are definitely buying the phone for the camera. It's number one use, right? More than anything else. Uh, oh, it's, I, well, I just have that vacation and I'm, I'm so sick of Instagram boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> Every time, you just wanted a stupid picture of some landscape or something. And it's nothing but some, some couple, somebody's trying to do the supermodel pose over a thing for the Facebook or Instagram. And I just, I just want to like wipe out the universe at that point. <laughs> All right, so changing, changing topics, changing topics for both you and Vala. All right, yeah, let's talk about the new Corvette. Corvette. So, oh, I love that topic. We were talking about topics, and the Corvette thing was there, and I was like, What the hell? But you know, the, the end of the day, the, the new Corvette looks cool, but frankly, I don't want to look like I'm having a midlife crisis, so I'm kind of not <laughs> speaking about midlife crisis. Vala, what do you do with the new Corvette? <laughs> Did you get the new new one? This is a, this is supercar performance, zero to sixty. They claim of three seconds. Mm -hmm. Handful of cars that can cars that can claim that. It looks like a McLaren. Its price point at sixty. Uh, of course, you add a few things. It's probably towards seventy. Uh, but 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 speaking, I mean, it's a supercar that's priced for uh, middle guys. <laughs> you know, yeah. Anyway, I love it. I, I, here's the problem. It's not a I'm just, you know, I'm just <laughs> midlife crisis wary at this point. So, <laughs> or you already bought your midlife crisis car? Are you telling me that? No. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm driving in the, my my daughter's Jeep that has no doors and no top, and I love it. So, so I have the ultimate Jeep Wrangler uh, convertible experience. But uh, <laughs> that's really cool. the C8 is really cool. Um, I, I can't wait to get in one. Uh, you know. uh, that's awesome. That's C8. I figured it, uh, we, before we're talking tech, then we'll talk a little bit of cars. But, 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 yeah, it's, it's a cool car. But before we end on a bad note, we'll get to this first. But hey, Capital One breach, right? Any more? What's going on? I mean, I think at this point, should we just get rid of social security numbers? I, uh, <laughs> let's start from scratch. Or you just accept that your stuff's out there on some marketplace. It, it is. The dark web time it, it is. I kind of gauged my like, okay, so the Equifax data breach happened and I will, I got wound up. I was pissed. And then the Capital One breach came. I mean, it helps that I don't have a Capital One card. That helps a lot. But generally speaking, I was like, eh, you know, what, what's 114 million people? Like, I'm just kind of like, you, you almost expect it to some degree. So it, it's interesting, and I'll be very curious to see what Capital One winds up paying out because, you know, these, these breaches are kind of like a slow expense bleed, right? It's you, you pay that first up front with a bunch of investigators and consultants and remediation, and then you pay, you know, you pay consumers out, there's share shareholder lawsuits, there's class action suits. It, it goes on. It's a two-year thing in terms of before you tally up the bill, and then some of it's covered by insurance. Um, so I don't know what Capital One will ultimately wind up paying, but I don't know if it'll necessarily hurt the company. Um, it's just interesting from a consumer, you know, tech reaction, because I, you know, th there's a certain part of 
you, you almost become immune to these things. Like, I, I don't know what kind of breach would really shock me anymore. 300 million? Hack all of China? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but the numbers need to be pretty big now. Like, you know, I need, I need 300 million to get me up in the morning now. Um, <laughs> and that, that's what's, you know, it's interesting. You just kind of get, but yeah, I mean, the social security numbers, you really just got to wonder whether they got to find something new, right? Because it, it's, it's obvious these things are all over the place. And, and now with technology, it all scales, right? Mm -hmm. I mean. It definitely does. Right. It's kind of, and, it's very, very scary. Right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, talk about e-commerce um, and, and do events like what we just talked about prohibit faster, greater adoption of e-commerce. But I just saw Deloitte research that looked at U.S. retail and it's a $3.7 trillion economy, U.S. retail. But commerce, e-commerce only represents around $300 billion, So about less than 10% uh, of, of U.S. retail is e-commerce. Where do you see the trend in terms of, I've seen World Economic Forum projections that in 10 years, it could be up to 50% uh, uh, would be e-commerce. What, what, what is your sense in terms of growth and adoption of digital commerce? Well, e-commerce e is only going to go up as, you know, part of that bigger market. Um, I think the thing to watch here is sort of that this is, this is why Amazon is, is spending so much to do one day shipping, right? And same day shipping. And that's why they have armies of, you know, contractors and these little companies with their little prime vans all over the place. Like around me, my God, it's like a little army. Um, it's like an army of ants every day around seven o'clock or so at 7 a.m. or so. They're just all over gassing up and everywhere, everywhere. You know, all, over, all, all these last mile firms. And once once the shipping cost and the shipping time kind of line up and that last mile gets more efficient and you can get something the same day or a few hours, which is the case in a lot of places. But once you can do that everywhere, then I think e-commerce winds up being a, you know, 40% half of all commerce sort of thing. Just because I, I think that's, you know, I, I mean, I do it all the time, right? If I need something, but I don't need it like that day and I can wait 24 hours, then it's fine. Sometimes you gotta run out and get, you know, stuff right away. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, I do think Americans like to shop, obviously. So, there is a generation of people that, you know, kind of think going to the malls of sport um, or the outlets or, or whatever the new thing is, because it sure as hell isn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's definitely experiential retail. We're definitely seeing that pop up uh, in the place. Right. So, so I think there's a mix of things. And, you know, I think we're going to get to a point where you're not going to be able to tell the difference between digital commerce, physical commerce, and these experiences, right? I think it's all going to blend into one thing. We call it omni-channel now, but I'm sure we'll have a new buzzword in a day or two. Um, but but that's kind of where it's going. So I, I could see half, but I think the lines are going to blur pretty heavily. Like, like what's Walmart? Is that an e-commerce thing or is it a physical thing? Or if you Red point. and pick up its store, I don't know. Is that digital or physical? It's kind of oh, both. No. The blending, right? the blending yeah, so I think at the end of the day, it's all just going to be retail. And you see that with Amazon getting into physical stuff. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years, you know, words like e-commerce and digital commerce just don't exist. Yeah, it's all just going to be retail. Well, hey, we are live here with Larry Dingman, Editor-in-Chief at ZDNet. You can follow him at ZDNet and, of course, Twitter at L-D-I-G-N-A-N -N for the latest of what's happening in the tech world. Uh, and more importantly, uh, the analysis and the insights of his and his team. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, Larry. Anytime. I'm off to get a Corvette. You <laughs> <laughs> get right. so. immediately. You get a vet, you're an automatic co-host. <laughs> All right. All right. We, awesome. We've a higher bar to the criteria of being a co-host. All right. He's, he's way too young to be talking about midlife crisis. Come on. Uh, no, I know. All right. Who we have next week? Episode number 158. 158. On Aubrey's going to let us know when we get close to 400 unique guests. But episode 158. We have Timothy O'Keefe, Chief Executive Officer of Simmons Industries. As our first guest, we have Bill Shanninger, author of Beyond Performance 2.0. And he's also a senior partner at McKinsey. And one of our favorite guests returning back to Disrupt TV, Heather Clancy, editorial director of Green Biz Group, herself uh, co-author of a wonderful book, 
and just someone who brings a balance of business sustainability, emerging technology, and how to and, and leadership principles that we all benefit from. Ray, closing remarks for episode 157 of Disrupt TV. And by the way, we are across multiple radio stations across the country. So tune yeah, in. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. You can always catch us here on live on our uh, live on our podcast here uh, at Disrupt TV Show. You can follow us on the Constellation website. That's about it. Thank you, everybody, and have an awesome Friday. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.